Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is June 21st of 2012, and our guest is Dr. Peter Venturelli, who is the co-author of Drugs and Society. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book, our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Dr. Peter Venturelli. Uh, he's all right here with us. He is the author of Drugs and Society. It's a really huge, very encyclopedic book. Uh, it's chock full of information about drugs. It's a good reference to go to if you want to learn something. And he's right here with us. Peter, how are you doing this evening? Pretty good, thank you. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Tell me a little bit about how you got interested in the topic of drugs and society. Well, it was never really my major in, in college, but I did do a lot of work in um, in deviance, and I guess I came at it from, from there. Uh, I got a call in the office when I, actually it was the first few weeks when I first started the job here at Valparaiso University, and I was moving into the office, and uh, this vice president from Jones and Bartlett called, and he was looking for someone to critique this book that was in the first edition called Drugs and Society. And his wife had, uh, I guess he'd gone through a divorce, and his wife um, got the house and he got the book, which I thought he he, he got the short end of, of the deal. But anyway, um, he uh, he asked, this, this vice president asked me to, to if, if I could critique the book and I didn't have any idea that they were looking for an author. I, I knew there was a divorce going on. That's what he had told me, but I had no idea. So I thought they were looking for some other author. To make a long story short, uh, I submitted pages and pages of uh, critique, um, informing him that I really didn't, uh, my area really wasn't drugs or drug use and abuse. And uh, I said, but I could come at it from different deviance theories in sociology. And so uh, I guess they sent it out to seven other people, and they called me and asked me if I wanted to be a co-author. That's how it happened back in 1988. Okay, you're a sociologist, so you work from that socio sociological perspective. So what does deviance mean to a sociologist, and what are different theories of deviance? Oh, there are a good number of, de of deviance theories. Um, deviance is really anything in society that is not approved of by a, by a majority, which leaves open a lot of behaviors. Uh, you can get a lot more specific with juvenile delinquency, which it came out of that, came out of the, and then criminology. But uh, deviance is mostly theoretically based, and it's looking at all forms of behavior that would be uh, in violation or different from the majority in in society. So it's pretty broad. And the theories are many. Uh, they have many theories dealing with uh, labeling theory, for example. And I don't know how familiar you are with all the different uh, theories. Uh, there's, uh, there's about seven, eight major theories 
in, in deviance. Well, our audience is probably not familiar with this at all, so if you could uh, uh, inform our audience a little bit about what the theories are. Well, like I said, first of all, there is labeling theory, uh, which is dealing with uh, people that get labeled and how they begin to see themselves as devious. Uh, there's uh, opportunity theory, what they, what they would call um, opportunistic theory, uh, where you're talking about people that are trying to advance uh, their own goals, and, as a, and, and, that, and in that sense, they become looked upon as as, uh, as devious. Uh, there's conflict theory, which deals with uh, larger aspects of behavior and looking at the political system and violation of of, of politics, or of what you would say, political systems. Uh, there, there, there. Actually, as I said, there's about seven or eight of them. I can't recall all of them right now. But uh, it generally, when we're talking about deviance, we're talking about anything that is not supported by the majority in society. So this would be a very socially relative concept. Um, if you were, say, in the USSR and you were a capitalist, you would be socially deviant, wouldn't you? <laughs> It all depends on the audience, as they say. Uh, the audience being other people and what they define as being deviant. So it's a, it, you know there's an absolute definition. There's a relative definition. The absolute definition is saying is is like is is often the way the criminal justice system views uh, illegal behavior. If it's a violation of law, it's devious. If it's not a violation of law. It doesn't fall into the realm of deviance. And then there's a relativistic perspective where it depends on the audience. Uh, and this is the more popular one in sociology. In criminology, it's the absolute definition. But we often change laws, you know, because we change our perception of deviance. I mean, sodomy, homosexuality used to be illegal quite many places. Um, a lot of those laws were stricken off the books, and even if they're still there, they're not uh, enforced anymore because it's no longer considered uh, a, a really deviant behavior as it used to be. Right. Smoking is the same thing. Smoking, toba or smoking tobacco is, is the same thing. It, it, the the uh, it, it, this theory, this relativistic perspective, generally comes from an interactionist perspective, saying that it varies according to whoever is doing the evaluating, which leaves it open to quite to quite a bit of behavior. I don't know okay. if that. Yeah. Okay, I was gonna. I'm gonna go uh, to some of the specific questions I was uh, asking you about when I emailed you about the show and the topics. Uh, uh, the book talks about the idea of a gateway drug, and what do you think about the idea of a gateway drug? Is there such a thing? Well, first of all, we have to say that the gateway, the, the whole thing, is basically a theory, uh, and it's very controversial. Um, my co-authors, who are pharmacologists, probably would not agree with that. I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, put words in, in into their mouth without their without them speaking. But generally, when we're talking about um, this particular thing, it varies a lot. 
you know, again, uh, the gateway theory is the belief that certain drugs, more commonly used drugs, lead to other drugs. And there's always, the, you know, the, the, the finding, and it's also common sense, that while you have most heroin users uh, have tried other drugs, you also have a lot of people that are confined to one drug, and they don't move on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is where I have a problem with gateway theory. Yeah, it seems like some people are, you know, some people are very averse to taking risks. Some are moderate risk takers and some take high risks and, you know, high risk takers might take any drug, but uh people who are moderate risk takers might limit themselves to more common things like marijuana or beer and risk averse people might not want to take any drugs. I, exactly. That's where the problem comes in. That's why I always I teach it, but I'm very dubious of it and I certainly tell students about it. Uh, because you can't assume that if somebody's using more of the benign drugs, they're going to move on to other drugs. There are, there, are there, there, there is a percentage that will do this, but it's a small percentage. Okay, what's your uh, perspective on uh, the the influence of the environment people grow up in, their home life? Do you think that you know if it's drug free, that everybody's necessarily going to be drug free when they grow up? Well, in sociology, we're looking at at at, uh, at large numbers, or what you would say, majorities. In most cases, with regard to drug use, uh, the what they call primary social socialization, family, a close, a lifelong friends, they certainly do have an influence on us. I mean, there isn't any, any question about it. But then you always get cases of, like you had mentioned before, in another discussion. Oh, oh, no, it was an email that we that mm-hmm. we uh, that we exchanged. That you always get people that um, are, are you know they they don't necessarily move on to the next to the next drug. You know. Yeah, there was a really interesting study in Michigan, the Tecumseh study, which studied alcohol. It found that uh, moderate drinkers, uh, when the parents were moderate drinkers, then most of the children followed with moderate drinking. But when the parents were abstainers, although there were more that emulated by abstaining, there was also a very large number that rebelled and drank heavily. And uh, the same was true when the parents were heavy drinkers. Um well, there were quite a few. The majority followed, or a large number followed, and were heavy drinkers, but a lot re- also rebelled and refused to drink at all. Right, right, exactly. Uh, Europe is a good example of that, where in many of the countries in Western Europe especially, uh, alcohol is a uh, standard uh, drink. And most uh, most of the people, I, I often go back to Italy because that's where my family's from originally. Uh, they are well seasoned uh, drinkers. They, I don't really see abuse. There's always some people in town that are overdo it and so on and so forth. But when you go up with moder with moderate with moderation, you find that uh, this uh, is also. Um, a beginning point for their approach to drugs and alcohol itself. Mm-hmm. We also see when we look at Ireland where it's uh, there's a lot of black and white there. That a lot of people are either very heavy drinkers or total abstainers. Not so much moderation. 
Well, there you get into cultural differences, you know, where uh, excessive drinking is like the is like a, a norm there, something that's considered pretty much normal. And then you've got people that will probably do the opposite because they see so much drinking going on. You know, you've got cases oftentimes, this was re- reported about 10 years ago, that uh, in New York City, um, they did a number of surveys. They Actually, they're constantly doing it. And uh, what, they're, what they found was that the children of parents who were crack users abstained from crack. They had nothing to do with crack. They would smoke mar- marijuana, in fact, blunts, uh, if you want to talk about the more extreme use. But they saw their parents, and they saw what, it, what, what crack did to them, and they uh, continually stay off of that drug. So, again, it all depends on your environment and what you see. I mean, that's one of the causes, but we can't say it's the only cause. But certainly home life, uh, family life, uh, friends, they have, they have, uh, they sort of teach us attitudes. Okay, do you think trauma plays a role in this? I mean, I've seen some people talk quite a bit about, you know, people that have had a lot of early childhood trauma get can have really deeply ingrained addictions that are very difficult to treat. Yes, this is this is all often found with women, women that were interviewed and studied, and they were heroin abusers, had some form. Oftentimes, they had sexual abuse in their own families, and these were the hardcore heroin users. So, trauma certainly is one of the major factors. Um, is there such a thing as recreational drug use? Can you use illegal drugs recreationally? Yes, certainly. Uh, there isn't any, any question of that. Uh, you mean it doesn't lead to abuse? Um, well, it's the problem in definitions, you know. Uh, our government uh, doesn't have any room for recreational drug users. If they're illegal drugs, you either have to have prisoner treatment. You don't have, you can't just say, well, you, you only use uh, heroin on Saturday night, so you're okay. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, that's one of the problems is that we don't we don't seem to be emphasizing moderation. Uh, when you know when you prohibit something, for a good number of people, it becomes very attractive, uh, and and the punishment that that they receive, as far as from the criminal justice system, uh, is not is not improving matters at all. Yeah, things uh, become things become attractive when they're illegal, and it also. Uh, it's very profitable when there's a black market and when you don't have any other way to really advance economically or very any easy way to advance economically it's very profitable to be to sell drugs yes it is and it's also very 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 rewarding to escape you know a situation like that poverty uh other kinds of miseries such as that and it's easy to escape into uh, the use of hard drugs yeah, we saw in Portugal uh, when it was de- decriminalized, I think about ten years ago, and we look at the drug use rates now. The most of them are down to about half of what they were before. Right, right, and we see this in Canada too, 
where there's a lot less marijuana use than in the United States and in Canada. It's uh, it's it's legal, I believe. Well, it's close to it anyway. If it's not completely yeah. legal, I think it's very close to it. It's a very decriminalized. I, I, it seems that you know our government is not able to understand moderation or to promote it. It's either one extreme or with some groups the other. But again, it seems they always take an extreme position. And with all the money that's you just have to total up all the money that's been spent by the criminal justice system to prohibit drug use, interdiction, uh, for example. Uh, we spent a fortune, and there, and yet any 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 young person and even older people can can uh, know somebody that they can buy drugs from. So all this money being spent is not really stopping the drug use. It's not even curtailing it. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard uh, it said it's much easier in junior high to get marijuana than it is to get alcohol. Right. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things we find. In fact, the marijuana use has been in, in these last couple of years, the last two years, it's been increasing at a pretty uh, significant rate uh, with regard to junior high school students. Well, I cover uh, and alcohol of... use has been going down with them. Mhm, mhm. Uh, I covered some of the main topics I wanted to cover. Uh, is there some topics that you would like to talk about? Well, uh, there's uh, there's a number of topics. There's the whole thing about the biological influences of uh, of drug of drug use, the belief that it's genetic. I have problems with that. My co-authors don't as much at all, but I do. I have problems with that. That you know, any time that you cannot find an explanation, you start going towards hereditary genetic kinds of explanations. And yet, very few of these genes have ever been discovered. You know, the gene that causes heroin use, uh, heroin abuse the gene that causes marijuana use. It's it's just, it, they could be the same genes, but they have never been really discovered. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit more with regard to alcohol that it could be um, hereditary, but there's so much contradiction when you get into to the literature that you're actually confused. You know, that's another topic that oftentimes, I mean, we have the same thing with with homosexuality. There's people that say, oh, it's genetic. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, they've examined brains of full-fledged homosexuals that have died, and they find no abnormalities, no differences. So, where is the gene that causes that? You know, that's that's what I'm asking. I always ask that question. So that's one of the interesting topics is that you know, and, and people that have different backgrounds obviously come at the subject matter with regard to drug use. From their from their perspective, the hardcore sciences oftentimes it's, it's biological. They're always looking for biological causes. They'll say some of it is caused socially, but most of it is biological. The, the social sciences, sociology, psycho, psychology, uh, will often uh, give more importance to uh, the social causes and neglect the uh, biological causes, or they'll say it's a very small percentage. 
So I think the, the debate goes on. But the fact that there's a debate means that there isn't a clear-cut answer. Yeah, I think even the really strong proponents of the genetic and biological model, um, they're saying now that at most it is uh, the heritability is 0.5, so it's only 50% accounted for by genetics, and also that it's it's multiple genes. There is no single one gene, and that's like the strongest uh, biological point. Says only 50% is uh, genetic. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The percentages aren't really that great. When they're talking, you know, the advancement of their, you know, of their theories or their findings, uh, it, that's never the the, uh, the case. And so I think it's reasonable, you know, if that's the strongest case, maybe it is really only like twenty five percent accounted for by genetics or less. That's what I would think. Yes, uh, that's a comfortable, I think, gut level anyway. And even what I've looked at, usually 20, 25 percent, which which means obviously, if you translate that, 80 percent is not explained. So that's not very good. <laughs> well, one thing that's really interesting to me is uh, Albert Bandura's uh, ideas about self-efficacy, and I've seen over and over, you know, when people believe in their abilities to change, those are the people that are successful in changing, even when they have very strong addictions. Right, right. Right, I mean, you look at these people that are court-ordered and they go to these rehab programs, that's just a waste of time because they don't, they don't have the mentality. They're, they're not at the point where they want to rid themselves of the abuse of a particular drug. So they go through the motions, they satisfy the courts, and then they're back on the drug again after all the pressure's off. You know, you, you, you have to have people that want the change. And I think from that point on, you can start to see progress. You, well, you begin to have progress. Well, I, exactly. Um, I, I, had like... a, I had a student that had a real alcohol problem years ago, and I knew him because he was a graduate student. He worked in our, in our department. And he had to go to the uh, the courthouse on Tuesdays, and I think I think it was once a week, and he would take anabuse. I don't know if you know what anabuse is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he would take anabuse, and prior he he did that for a, a month or two, and then he would go to the drugstore or he would go to a grocery store and buy a quart of Pepto Bismol. He would drink the Pepto Bismol. And then go in for the an abuse, which they watch you take it in your mouth and swallow it. And he was coating his stomach so that the an abuse would not affect him. And then he learned how to put his fingers in his mouth and then extract whatever fluids he had in in his body. So obviously that isn't working, right? I mean, obviously if he's doing that, uh, they, they, you know, all these people that are uh, that are addicted to drugs, if they want to stay with their addiction, or they see no other way, they will continue to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Thomas Zaz had quite a few good points that I like, and one of the points he made, Thomas Zaz. Yes. Yes. Yes, uh, one of the points he made, if you want to tell people that a behavior is bad, you have to have a punishment for it and say that you are being punished because it's a bad behavior. If you tell people they have a disease that they can't control, then you really don't tell them to stop the behavior. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, again, it, it, it all depends on how, how it's perceived uh, and how it's perceived by the user. Uh, I, I, you know, if they really want to quit, I think you, you, you have some ground-level beginnings. But if, uh, if you're doing it to satisfy more punishment, it really isn't going to work. I mean, look at how many people are locked up in prison in the United States for simple po- simple possession. Uh, do you think that after uh, being locked up for for a month or two or even years, you're going to suddenly quit? The first thing they do when they get out is they, they go back to the drug, at least within the first few weeks. Well, yeah, I think the thing is that the laws also have to make some sort of sense. I mean, most people agree that it's good to have a punishment for murder, and that's that's not a rational behavior. But uh, so many people say, you know, I have the right to control my own body. It's my business what I put in my body. It's not the government's business to tell me, you know, I can't put in marijuana, I can't put in alcohol or something. Well, look at all the problems we're having with these synthetic marijuana right now. Bath salts, which were sold for other things, I would imagine, first started out. And uh, now uh, people are abusing it. So how many laws are you going to create? I think pretty soon uh, if you smoke oregano, it's going to be against the law. <laughs> I mean, it, it gets to be ridiculous. I mean, look at these people that are in, uh, using inhalants. What are you going to do, stop all the spray paints, stop all the glues? That are that are that are canned, uh, the, the mineral spirits. Uh, how do you control that? Yeah, it really doesn't make any sense to you know tell people that you can't put this in your own body. I mean, it's it's a matter of personal right. Even if you want to take strychnine, I mean, that's your own business. Right. Right. I think this is where that harm reduction comes in. It's something that we have to look at more closely. And we are looking at it, but, uh, there I mean, there are people that look at it, even in government, but they seem to constantly want to reject it. It's some kind of a threat to somebody. Uh, there's also, you know, the belief that drug companies are, are sort of supporting all the drug laws. Uh, they certainly... Lobby, and they certainly uh, they certainly uh, contribute, uh, but I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate. Uh, I don't I don't think the 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 uh, well I don't know that's an argument that, that the pharmaceutical companies are worried that these other drugs will take over business, you know, which they they don't they don't sell. I don't know to what extent that's true, and I'm wondering you know how many of these laws are backed up by people that uh, have interests that are purely economic, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we can go back to a, to a time not so long ago, about 100 years ago, when there were, there were no prescription drug laws. Um, that's, a more, that's a recent innovation. You used to be able to buy any drug over the counter, and it was kind of the doctors and the pharmacists got together and right. said, you know, if we regulate all these, we can make a lot of money because they'll have to go to the doctor's office and get a prescription for it, and we'll both make money. Right, right, exactly, yeah. And a lot of the people that were backing up these laws, and they were like main spokespeople for uh, prohibition, 
they were characters that apparently, from everything I've looked at, the ones I've looked at, for different types of drugs, they were pretty obsessive about uh, restricting others with regard to drug use. They weren't very rational people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the law goes into effect and society stuck with it. Well, you're probably familiar with uh, Harry Anslinger. And, uh, I was just thinking about him, yeah. yeah. Go ahead and talk about him. <laughs> well, Anslinger was pretty obsessive, obviously. Uh, I don't think he was in his right mind, but you know, he, just looking at the um, clips of him that we at times I will show in class, uh, he wasn't very logical about marijuana use. You know, claiming that it causes insanity, uh, people rape and kill others on this drug. I mean, today we look at these uh, clips and laugh, but in those days, uh, people didn't know much about marijuana. At least, well, there were groups that did know quite a bit about it, but they were small groups. Uh, you know, musicians, uh, people of Hispanic origin, and were like that. And obviously, they had been using this drug for a long time. Uh, and uh, they thought it was ridiculous. The population bought bought into it. So they bought into the hysteria and the fear of a particular drug, and there was all kinds of legislation. I mean, it's very difficult to overturn these uh, marijuana laws, you know, these marijuana, these laws that are focusing on marijuana use. Uh, at least states are doing it, but the federal government is still ages behind. You know, in California, that's a good example where it's, where it's, where it's legal to have a certain amount, but federal law says no. Yeah, the whole federal law thing is very problematic because for the Constitution, the way the Constitution is written, it requires an amendment to have a federal prohibition law, which we did with alcohol. We did legally pass the amendment, but we never legally passed the amendments to uh, prohibit drugs, so these are really not valid. They're very unconstitutional laws. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a disharmony, and it's very awkward. I don't know... I guess they go to federal court, and obviously it's almost like two systems that are opposing one another for those states that have a certain amount of marijuana usage, you know, where they allow a certain amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hugely problematic. If anybody goes and gets out the Constitution, look it up online, read the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. It says, any rights not specifically given to the federal government by this Constitution are reserved to the states or to the people. And that means, you know, to give the federal government more rights, you have to pass constitutional amendments. Right. I mean, my feeling is, if there's a drug that becomes legalized uh, and there's a majority that believe in it, then we need to have uh, laws just like we do with alcohol. You know, the minors of certain age sold at certain places only. Uh, I think that would alleviate a lot of the a lot of the problems. People are doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, caught, they get arrested, but the, again, the, they keep doing it. So obviously that is not working. We're going to have to address this one of these days as a nation. You know, right now it's very fragmented. It's a mess. It is totally a mess. 
Well, we're coming to the end of the show time, so uh, what what concluding remarks would you like to leave our audience with? Uh, the concluding remarks basically is, is what we just mentioned, is that we need to have public forums and come to an agreement with how we're going to approach drug use. Uh, and I'm not saying that we should you know, go in a, in a particular direction, but we need to be rational about this, and uh, we we would save a lot of money, as far as you know what what we're spending and the and the small results that we're getting. Uh, and, you know, we're sort of we're sort of we have laws where we prohibit people from doing from using drugs uh, that uh, are based on fear, and 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 even Ben Duras showed that that doesn't work, right? Yeah, that's correct. I don't remember who said it, but someone said that no drug law should cause more harm than the drug itself. Exactly. I mean, look to look at the look at the Netherlands and look at other countries, and you know, we need to uh, investigate whether we can implement some of those things into our own laws, and not just de- deny them and show the adverse effects of them. You know. Uh, I think it would be it would be great, even though it sounds radical, sounds crazy, to have some place where you can bring your drugs and have them tested. You know, it is crazy, but it, you know we don't want people to be harmed. We don't want people to die. Uh, we're trying to avoid all that. Now, in a way, you know, it's like passing out condoms in high school. In a sense, are you promoting it? We get we get back to to that argument. But again, there's, there's, there's a percentage of people that will always be interested in drug use. So how do we deal with them? Mm-hmm. Because what, what, we, what we've been doing in the past and all of our history doesn't work. Well, there is an organization called Dance Safe that does do some drug testing at raves. Uh, they test uh, your ecstasy. Uh, so they have, but, you know, it's all run by volunteers. It's, you know, it's all... It's all funded by you know donors, not uh, no federal government funding for that kind of thing. I mean, I I can have prescription drugs in my car that are ten times more uh, dangerous than a little bag of marijuana, but yet I'll be arrested for the marijuana. But they'll look at the bot, the, the police will look at the bottle and look at my name, and they'll they'll pass it up. Now, isn't that crazy? That is completely crazy. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's just an insane system. I, I don't understand it. So that's where we're at. I just see a lot of contradiction. I see a lot of problems. It's just nobody seems to really be addressing it in a very systematic fashion. That's that. Thought. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Peter Venturelli. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it. And everyone, stay tuned. Next week we will be talking about tobacco harm reduction with Dr. Gilbert Ross. So I'll see you all next week, and good night. <laughs>